Welcome to the Gospel Reverb Podcast. Gospel Reverb is an audio gathering for preachers, teachers, and Bible thrill seekers. Each month, our host, Anthony Mullins, will interview a new guest to gain insights and preaching nuggets mined from select passages of Scripture in that month's Revised Common Lectionary. The podcast's passion is to proclaim and boast in Jesus Christ, the one who reveals the heart of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And now, on to the episode. Hello, friends, and welcome to the latest episode of Gospel Reverb. Gospel Reverb is a podcast devoted to bringing you insights from Scripture found in the Revised Common Lectionary and sharing commentary from a Christ-centered and Trinitarian view. I'm your host, Anthony Mullins, and it's my delight to welcome this month's guest, Stephen D. Morrison. Stephen calls himself an amateur theologian who has authored 13 books, including the Plain English series. For example, Carl Barth in Plain English and T.F. Torrance in Plain English and recently James Cone in Plain English and other books like We Belong, Trinitarian Good News. You can find these books on Amazon or through his personal website at sdmorrison.org. That's S as in Sam, D as in David, Morrison.org. Now, theology is the central passion of his life. However, he does have other pursuits, and one in particular, coffee. He is a coffee roaster who appreciates the subtle delights of Java, including the tactile experience of roasting, brewing, and drinking it. Stephen, you're my kind of guy, (laughs) and I am learning to appreciate coffee. I, I didn't start until I was 33 years old. I'm 51 now, but... I've uh, made up for some lost time through the years, and and I'm glad to know that you really appreciate the the delights of coffee. Thank you for joining us today, and welcome to the podcast. And for those in our listening audience who may not be familiar with you and your work, we'd we'd like to know you. So tell us a little bit about your story. Sure. Um, yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the uh, invitation, and um, yeah. Speaking of speaking of coffee, I am drinking a nice brandy this morning, which I'm enjoying quite a bit. So, <laughs> can definitely relate to the the coffee uh, shared shared love of coffee. So, yes. appreciate that. Um, but yeah, my um, my background. I, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. I still live here with my wife. I've traveled around a little bit, but um, I um, am a writer and theologian. I've um, written, like you said, several books now. Uh, the Plain English series, kind of being the main one. Um, for me, I, I grew up Methodist and charismatic and um, really started to kind of find a uh, passion for theology um, as I kind of discovered the doctrines of grace. And um, for me, that was a big, um, big revelation, a big moment to uh, really following, um, falling in love with with the experience that theology can bring you to the the um, depths mm-hmm. that, it, that it has. And so um, that was coming from reading T.F. Torrance, Carl Barth, and just kind of opening up this whole new world of um, intrigue and, and interest. And so, um, yeah, I um, love theology. I love reading. I'm a big reading guy. Um, uh, my wife and I also like to travel and uh, watch good movies, stuff like that. So we um, do all of that. But yeah, that's that's me a little bit personally. I, um, uh, yeah, still, still love doing theology. I'm always reading something new and, and it's considered a great adventure. So um, I, yeah. Love it very much. But. Yeah. So let me put you on the spot, Stephen. Um, two questions. One book recommendation, maybe something you've read recently. And then secondly, one locale, location you've traveled to with your wife that you're like, man, if you haven't been, you've got to go. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard. We we lived in Europe for a few years. Um, I actually lived with her in Tallinn, Estonia, which is where she's from. And so... I, if people haven't heard of Estonia, it's a very beautiful country. Um, I would recommend visiting there and traveling there. Their old town is one of the best preserved in Europe. Um, so if you're into history, it's a very beautiful place to be. The nature is really great. So uh, I would definitely say that's the place to go visit if you have the chance. Um, kind of off the beaten path. People don't mm. typically plan trips there, but it's definitely worth it. Um, as far as book recommendations... Um, I have a lot. I, it's hard to say. I, <laughs> I, um, I'm always read new things. I, I suppose I recently reread parts of Gustavo Gutierrez's uh, Theology of Liberation. Mm. Um, always recommend that one. That's a great book um, for for many reasons. Um, that one's quite good. Um, always can go with 
you know, some of the classics, some of the ones that are closest to me as well, like something like Dogmatics and Outline from Bart. Um, but um, that's one that's recently uh, one that I reread and, and enjoyed quite a lot. Yeah, I I hear you. And it sounds like you're a bit like me. It's it's not that you're reading one book at a time. It's multiple. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. And I'm a slow yeah. reader, so it takes me a while to get through them. Listen, yeah. Stephen, I uh, I sometimes hear Christians ask why we need to listen to or read theologians, since we we already have the Bible. You know, you've written several books about theologians we admire on this po- podcast: uh, Bart, Torrance, Moltmann, to name a few. And of course, you're a theologian yourself. So, what would you say to those who push back on the work of theology and theologians? Yeah, um, you know, I've I've heard this phrase a lot um the idea that oh i don't need theology i i just have jesus um it's a phrase i've heard thrown around and um especially you know i I think it's an ironic phrase because i do think that being doing theology is unavoidable um and you know theology is just our god talk and bart talks about that how uh theology is for the church it is a critical reflection for the uh speech of the church when it when we speak of god um and so this this phrase that yeah I don't I don't need theology I just have Jesus in and of itself is a theological statement because uh, mm-hmm. I always want to kind of come back with people who say that and say well which Jesus you know the moment yes. that you're talking about this Jesus person that you're saying that you have which whatever that means kind of a dubious statement I would say <laughs> to say that you have Jesus but um, to, you know you're already making a theological claim when you're saying these things and so the question isn't doing theology or not, everybody is having a theology. It's whether or not you have a good theology. And that's why it's necessary to have critical reflection on what it is to speak of God um, and, you know, why people like Bart are important. Because what typically happens, Bart has this great kind of turn of phrase where he talks about he's critiquing Schleiermacher. Um, I've written before where I think he's maybe not doing the best job of critiquing Schleiermacher, but uh, he's critiquing Schleiermacher and he says that one cannot speak of God by speaking of man in a loud voice. And I think that's such a great phrase because that's a tendency that is very easy to fall back into uh, where if we just don't critically examine what it means to speak of God, we're going to just be talking about ourselves and we're going to be amplifying what it is to be human and think that that's what God is like or we're going to project our own fears or hopes, our own um, insecurities up into the heavens, and we're going to call it God. And so critical reflection on theology is essential for um, understanding God's uh, revelation in Jesus Christ. Uh, It's essential for um, proclaiming the gospel. And so it's unavoidable to do theology. Um, Everybody's doing it, like I said. And then really the other point is that uh, not everyone's doing it well. And so um, the existential side of it as well is that um, one of my favorite definitions of theology is from um, Anselm and and others have said it as well, of course, but define theology as faith seeking understanding. So the moment that, you know, you're talking about faith and that you have faith, you are doing a theological act. um, And it is a natural thing to pursue the understanding of faith. And so I, I think it's unavoidable, and I think um, it's it's just a part of what it is to be a people of faith in a community that's trying to all speak of God. Uh, it's necessary to have this critical reflection. And so theology for me is, a, is an adventure in that sense. I do think that um, there's a Latin phrase, theologia, uh, theolog- theologia viatorum, which means the theology of pilgrims. Um, and I think that's an apt uh, description of how I think about theology as well. Nobody's arrived at perfect mm, theology. Yes. And I think that's some of the pushback people have with theologians. They see them as these kind of, I don't know, snobby, white old guys telling you what to think about God. And, um, you know, that's not what it is. That's not been my experience. Uh, maybe you're reading the wrong theologians, but um it really is an adventure of you of discovery. It's an adventure with God that he can take you on uh, with, you know, the help with other theologians. But really, it's it is this adventure and it's a pilgrim. Uh, um, we're always theologians still on the way. Um, I, you know, I think for the rest of my life, I'll be pursuing that question of what it means to speak of God. And I think that's the task of theology that, that any person of faith is going to still go on Um and so I do think that there's a bit of that humility that comes into it that sometimes is is lacking for theologians. But, you know, someone like Faith, uh, Karl Barth that 
was writing, you know, enormous amounts of work and still wasn't able to finish it and still felt like there was still more to be said um, is, I think, a good example of what a uh, healthy theological approach is. And um, yeah, this just this is pursuit, I think, is beautiful and it's um, essential to uh, what it looks like to. Yeah, live out our faith in a in a practical way, and um, to critically reflect on speaking of God, and yeah. so yeah, that's, that's well said. And I, I appreciate how you came at it from a, a posture of humility that there's no perfect theology, no theology mm-hmm. that is airtight that has all the answers, and and yeah. that's why I appreciate what Bart said that no act of man can claim to be more than an attempt. <laughs> Not yeah. even science and theology, even though it's the sweetest of sciences, it, it's mm-hmm. still just an attempt to yeah. talk about this God. It's it's like uh, Capon says, you know, the to try to describe God is like throwing analogies at a mystery. <laughs> you know, you yeah. just you just yeah, attempt. That's all you can do. Yeah. Well, f- well, friends, it's that time. Here are the four Bible passages that we're going to discuss. Luke chapter 20, 27 through 38, the God of the living. Luke chapter 21, 5 through 19, opportunity to testify. Luke 23, 33 through 43, Father, forgive them. And then finally, Matthew 24, 36 through 44, stay alert. The first passage of the month is Luke 20, 27 through 38 from the Common English Bible. It is the Revised Common Lectionary Passage for Proper 27, that is November the 6th. Some Sadducees, who deny that there's a resurrection, came to Jesus and asked, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a mother, a man's brother dies, leaving a widow but no children, the brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there are seven brothers. The first man married a woman and then died childless. The second and then the third brother married her. Eventually all seven married her, and they all died without leaving any children. Finally, the woman died too. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? All seven were married to her. Jesus said to them, People who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to participate in that age, that is, in the age of the resurrection from the dead, won't marry, nor will they be given in marriage. They can no longer die, but they are like angels and are God's children since they share in the resurrection. Even Moses demonstrated that the dead are raised in the passage about the burning bush when he speaks of the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He isn't the God of the dead, but of the living. To him, they are all alive. You know, Stephen, like the Sadducees, many people today deny that there is a resurrection. Why does a sound eschatology, including the resurrection of the dead, matter? And how should it impact our lives? Yeah, it's, um, you know, the resurrection is the most radical claim uh, of the Christian faith, I believe. It's, it's, it's such a hope against hope is kind of a phrase Maltman uses to to talk about eschatology. It's it's this this eschatological uh, coming of God is such a um, profound hope that um, really it either doesn't mean anything or it means everything, and I think it's the latter. And I and I think having this hope, having this uh, um, faith in the resurrection of the dead, is so important um, not only for our lives here, but really for you know our engagement with the world. I think Maltman's theology of hope is something I immediately come to with a lot of this, um, where he stresses that from the beginning, theology, eschatology isn't just a part of faith, but it really is um, the essence of what it is to be a Christian today is to yearn and to hope for the coming of God um, in a uh, profound way. And so, yeah, the resurrection of that is, is such a radical um, part of our faith, and it's sometimes difficult. And so I sympathize, I guess, with the people that um, struggle with the resurrection. Um, I think it is a hope beyond hope. It's something that transcends, you know, it, it's not, it's not something I would think of my, for myself, you know, if I'm just 
relying back on myself, but that's the reality of what faith is. It's being pulled and, and um, compelled by something uh, bigger than myself. And so, yeah, it, it very much matters for our daily lives. I think hope for the future um, challenges our engagement with the world today. Um, I moment talks about how this hope uh, go it puts us in conflict with the present uh, because we hope for the kingdom that's to come, the uh, justice that will be established through the reign of God. We were put into conflict with the situations of this world that that contradict that 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 aren't uh, kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so that prayer that Jesus taught us to pray is so essential for this that you know, like Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is really the orientation for much of what we do and how we engage uh, with the world. And so it's essential, yeah, to be able to have this hope, not only on a personal level, but on a uh, church level where we uh, feel we're not going to just hide away from the world. We do believe that this world will be uh, a part of the resurrection and that um, the resurrection that comes, the new heaven, the new earth. And so I think sometimes eschatology can have a negative spin where we're just escapists. We're just hoping that, oh, you know, everything's going to burn and we're just going to escape on the spaceship or whatever. And, and you know, it, it's very anti-human. But I think there's a there's a way to um, believe in the resurrection of the dead that is very humane. And, and it brings us back to the uh, hope that we have for this world and the hope that we have for uh, the people in our lives and, and pushes us out into the world and out of our safe little Christian bubbles into uh, what does it look like to proclaim kingdom come in this situation and and these sorts of social situations, political, whatever it may be, and uh, and um, impacting not only our lives and how we hope, but uh, giving us the courage to uh, proclaim that kingdom anew and um, um, yeah, proclaim the the fruit of Jesus's words. So yeah, hope against hope. That's well stated. You know, when we come to scripture, Stephen. It's so important that Jesus is our hermeneutical principle, the lens in which we read. But often we, we're we reading through our fallen minds, and mm-hmm. we need to recognize that. So with that in mind, I want to ask you the next question. In this passage, it says, those who are considered worthy to participate in that age. Well, who are those people that Jesus, is, Jesus describes in verse 35? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, like you said, any text I think takes a bit of um, critical thought to 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 analyze, and um, I think it's it's important for something like this to step back and you know ask who even are the Sadducees, who's Jesus responding to, um, and you know, the good Bible student would tell you that Sadducees are the elite class within Jewish society. They were kind of the privileged, um, um, landed, uh, uh, powerful, and rich of the time, and so. I think that helps contextualize this a little bit um, because, uh, you know, a big motif of Luke's gospel is this critique of the um, the powers that be, as you were, uh, as you as you might say. And so I think this worthy to participate in that age, it, it kind of sets up this um, dialectic between those who have a hope in the material things of this world uh, that are fixated on these, um, as you said, kind of human mindsets, uh, fallen uh, mindsets, and those who are anticipating and living in the kingdom that is to come and is still present in us through the Spirit, uh, yet we still yearn for its full consummation in the coming of, of Christ. And so I think the, the phrase, who are those who are worthy to partic- or considered worthy to participate in that age, um, does reflect this sense of being those who um, anticipate in hope uh, the resurrection and our obviously in Christ is the key to, you know, I think understanding this, like you said, Jesus is always going to be our hermeneutic. Um, but I think it, it does set up this distinction between those who have their hope in the powers of this world, uh, the systems of this world, the um, the riches of this world, and those who have their hope in the kingdom that is to come. Um, and so the worthy to participate in that age are those who that that is where their hope lies. That is... Um, they're, they're, they are in Christ in that sense, not just in this positional sense, um, not just in this sense of um, being united to Christ, as we believe all Christians are, um, but 
in the sense of I've actively put my hope into this uh, coming of God. And um, that's my uh, foundation. And so, um, yeah, setting up this distinction, like I said, of, of where is my faith? Where's my hope? It's not in mammon. It's not in the systems of this world, but it's in the, the coming of God, the uh, coming of, the, of um, justice and the coming of his, uh, his reign. Mm. Verse 38 states, God is the God of the living, and to him all are alive. What should we make of that statement? Yeah, um, God is living, and you know, God is the one in whom all things um, have their being. And so even those who have, have passed um, have passed in Christ. And so, um, you know, Christ is the resurrection and the life. And I think that um, God isn't um, someone who... Um, I think accepts, you know, the, the deadness that's within us, but is always calling us to life because that's who God is. And um, so, yeah, I, I think that all those who are alive in Christ, I think is the, the core to that, that the resurrection um, is the new creation of all things that begins in him. And so um, it's, yeah, being in Christ is, is life and being outside of Christ is not. And so I think that's um, potentially one way to understand it theologically. Um, but um, yeah. Well, let's transition to our next pericope, which is Luke chapter 21, 5 through 19. It is the revised common lectionary passage for proper 28, which is November the 13th. Stephen, would you read it for us, please? Sure. Some people were talking about the temple, how it was decorated with beautiful stones and ornaments dedicated to God. Jesus said, As for the things you are admiring, the time is coming when not even one stone will be left upon another. All will be demolished. They asked him, Teacher, when will these things happen? What sign will show that these things are about to happen? Jesus said, Watch out that you aren't deceived. Many will come in my name, saying, I am the one, and it is time. Don't follow them. When you hear of wars and rebellions, don't be alarmed. These things must happen first, but the end won't happen immediately. Then Jesus said to them, Nations and kingdoms will fight against each other. There will be great earthquakes and wide-scale food shortages and epidemics. They, there will also be terrifying sights and great signs in the sky. But before all this occurs, they will take you into custody and harass you because of your faith. They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will provide you with an opportunity to testify. Make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance. I'll give you words and wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to counter or contradict. You will be betrayed by your parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends. They will execute some of you. Everyone will hate you because of my name. Still, not a hair on your head will be lost. By holding fast, you will gain your lives. I don't know about you, Stephen, but when somebody tells me not to be alarmed, guess what happens? <laughs> I, get, I immediately get alarmed, right? And, and Jesus tells us not to be alarmed when we hear of wars and rebellions. And he, he goes on to say there will be earthquakes, food shortages, and epidemics. I mean, this this sounds very real and scary and relevant to us in 2022. So what should we make of it? And those who cry out, these are the end time signs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much so. I, I, you know, I think the the tendency to look at all of these and immediately cry up all last days and of times um, kind of misses the point. You know, it, like you said, it misses the point of do not do not um, uh, have this fear. Do not have uh, be alarmed by this um, because it, it sets people into this fear mentality of oh, but. We should be afraid, you know. It, it does the exact opposite, I think, of what, what Christ is saying. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, I think you can look at the text a couple different ways. I think one would be to analyze it historically and recognize, you know, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD being a big part of this passage. Uh, potentially that um, as as the um, it was a, in a word of courage to those who would go through that. Um, you know, but it, it does give witness to us today who, you know, will have these struggles. And I think as I look over the passage, you know, re rethinking about it, um, the uh, big impression that I think is, is meant through it is really the courage that comes from um, being in Christ during these times and having the spirit with us um, as that comfort and uh, wisdom and to know what to say in the right times. And um, 
So I think, yeah, I think looking in these passages for some sort of secret clue to, you know, when everything's going to end or whatever, the end times kind of um, uh, fanaticism, I, I guess you could say, is missing the point. I, you know, I think the the emphasis of this is really that Christ will be with us even in, in the most tumultuous of situations um, socially and, and in the world, um, but that, you know, not a hair on your heads will be lost. And, you know, even that it's, it's very interesting that that phrase comes shortly after he says, they will execute some of you. <laughs> Still not a hair in your head will be lost. And you're like, well, which is it? And we're like, well, in Christ, you know, we are safe and comfort in him. Even if we die, even, you know, in, in his death, we, we join him in death, but that's the hope of being raised to new life with him as well. And so um, it's very interesting parallel there but uh like i said i think the the main uh part of this is really just that comfort and hope that comes even in the midst of suffering and, and turmoil and uh, trials and all these things and so uh the emphasis for this passage for me is that we're we uh, find this hope because we are in christ and not to be fixated on the the things that happen but to be fixated on christ Right on. And you you mentioned courage. And according to our Lord, being harassed for our faith is an opportunity to testify or to speak courageously. But testify to what exactly, Stephen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, testify to, to Christ and that he has overcome the world um, through his, his death and resurrection. He's taken upon um, himself the, the suffering and the sin of uh, human beings and has um, done away with it in his death and um, put it aside. And in the resurrection, there is hope for the new creation of all things. And so we're, we testify to that by being able to um, not be overcome by the situations of the world, uh, but to recognize that they have been overcome themselves uh, by Christ. And we testify to the resurrection. We were just talking about the resurrection and, you know, that's a big part of what we testify, but it's not just a resurrection. It's the resurrection of Christ, uh, which we take part in um, through the scriptures. We, we are, through baptism as the sign of that, you know, we were brought down in his death so that we will be raising the new life in him. And so, yeah, we're testifying to that hope that's within us, uh, to being have, able to have the courage to face these trials um, with with hope, with uh, with joy, even because of um, what Christ has done for us and, and our hope of being in him. And I think that's such a key phrase for for the whole of the New Testament as well as, you know, especially Paul's letters, that we are in him and in Christ, those two phrases. And, um, you know, that's what we're testifying to is our um our safety and our, our protection that um, our lives ultimately aren't ours to be worried about, but they're God's and, and they're in his hands. And, um, and I think that's a beautiful thing that we're witnessing too. And it's, um, yeah, the source of our hope and our courage. Yeah. You, you mentioned that uh, this should lead to joy and I don't know if it was Bart or maybe it was Eugene Peterson um, talked about how theology should lead to doxology. I mean, the the work of coming to yeah. scriptures and reading a passage like this, even with all that surrounds us in the circumstances of this this world, it, Jesus has overcome it. So we rejoice. That is the response to to such good news. And and while we we do this work of theology, let me ask you this: what what do you think it means that we'll we'll gain our lives by holding fast? What is that? Yeah, no, I, I think, um, you know, a big question of, uh, if we go back a bit to ancient philosophy and Plato and Socrates and all these was the question of what is the good life? And so I think the question of what life is, is, is one thing. And, you know, there's the, the scientific fact of life being alive, but then there's that deeper question of what it is to, to live. And, and I think really the Christian answer to this is, is quite direct that, um, to live is is to be in Christ, and um, to 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 have this fellowship with God is what truly is life. And so, I think this phrase can kind of be interpreted by this. The scriptures typically sometimes um, hold hold together this kind of twofold understanding of life. There is a life of the current age, 
uh, which is fading away and is dying. And then there's the life in the age to come, uh, which is the true life, the life of uh, participation in, in the uh, fellowship of God, of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and being lifted up into that that life, the so- very source of life itself. And so I think that's kind of how we can understand this uh, phrase that we gain our lives by holding fast. Um, because what is it really worth to hold on so tightly to a life that's rooted in the in the present age, that's rooted in the things that are falling away, that's rooted in the old man, the old Adam, whatever you know, phrase or metaphor we want to use? Um, what is that really worth if in trying to you know white knuckle grasp uh, the things that we consider um, valuable for this age, if we don't recognize that the true life is the life of um, being one with Christ, participating in his fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. And, and that's, that's what it is. We gain our lives by holding fast, um, because may we, we may lose our life in this, uh, this age uh, by doing so, but we gain the life that is truly life. Uh, the the life that is actually the good life, and I think that answers that that philosophical question. What is what is the good life? The good life for a Christian is is fellowship with God, is mm-hmm. is life in in Christ, in in participation in the uh, triune life of God. And so, yeah, that um, sort of distinction. There's no there's life without God is just incomplete. It's it's not that true life. It's not the good life. And so, um, it's seems paradoxical to make this claim that. Um, even in death, even in suffering and struggling, that we would find uh, actually what the good life is. But um, it's a big, I think, motif of the scriptures that we we hold on to the life that is to come. Mm. I like the illustration of white knuckling it. And I've got my hand in a fist right now and my knuckles are white. and, And I'm just thinking about what it looks like to try to hold on to the things that are not eternal, the things of this life that will fade away. And when my my fist is closed, I'm not able to receive, you know, mm-hmm. in a sense, what God wants to so generously give to me. And I open up my my hand, and and I to me that's a metaphor of what it looks like in the Christian life. And that is, I I, I can't bring anything to God's table. I mean, mm-hmm. He is He has accomplished it in Jesus Christ, and all I can do is receive. But that is active participation you know, receiving uh-huh. the good things that God has in store. So I appreciate that word. Let's transition on to our next pericope, which is Luke chapter 23, 33 through 43. It is a revised common lectionary passage for proper 29, which is on November the 20th. When they arrived at the place called the skull, they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. They drew lots as a way of dividing up his clothing. The people were standing around watching, but the leader sneered at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he really is the Christ sent from God, the chosen one. Soldiers also mocked him. They came up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, If you're really the king of the Jews, save yourself. Above his head was a notice of the formal charge against him. It read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging next to Jesus insulted him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Responding, the other criminal spoke harshly to him. Don't you fear God, seeing that you've also been sentenced to die? We are rightly condemned, for we are receiving the appropriate sentence for what we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you that today you will be with me in paradise. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. You know, I think it's impossible to comprehend the magnitude of this statement. All we can do is try to apprehend it, right? So I want to give you an opportunity to help us apprehend the reality contained within. What say you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, certainly a, you know, one of the most beautiful and challenging statements you know, in the New Testament in, in terms of how, um, 
how it just really hits home. You know, it hits us right in our heart. And um, I think I, when I, when I hear this, I typically think of um, how Bart understood the doctrine of sin and, and what even sin is. And I, and I think he, he, he got it right when he said that we don't even know the depth of our sin without first knowing the depth of Christ's um, reconciliation and, and that we have to begin uh, with, with, um, with Christ. And so what sin is, what it is that we even need forgiven from, we, we don't truly know it until we uh, know it in the light of, of reconciliation. And so I think um, Bart uses that to create this beautiful concept of, um, you know, he starts off with our, our, the, the humiliation of the Son of God, that God became humble and became a human being so that the human beings who try to become God uh, see what it is to truly be human and and all of these different things. But, you know, I think that just helps us think about this in a different way where we truly don't know sin. I think we're very quick to label things and, and all of this, but I think we don't we don't know it in the sense where we don't know the depth of how much it hurts not only us, how much it hurts our society and, and the people we love, uh, but how much it, it grieves God and, and um, most of all. And so not knowing what we're doing uh, when we do these things is is um, just what it is to be human. But I think we we have a sense not only of um, what those things are, but more importantly, we know them um, truly as we are um, forgiven of them. And that's kind of the beauty of the gospel is that even the things that we don't know that we've done, the uh, the sin that we are scarred by um is is healed and, and is reconciled in in the power of um of christ and of his death and resurrection and his in his life lived on our behalf and so yeah that's you know it's 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 such a mystery as well i think that you know i don't want to ever try to remove the mystery from from scripture or from the the uh, beauty of what what christ has done for us um because there is still mystery in this uh, and there is still a sense of awe that we should always have for this. And I think that's the, the first impression that I think I, I have. And I would, I would want to impress on um, everyone listening is that, you know, this is a beautiful phrase, but it's a terrifying and awe inspiring phrase. And um, that we are forgiven in spite of not knowing what we do and the, the person on the cross with them, uh, you know, receive this promise of being with them the day in paradise and how, kind of paradoxical that even feels but you know mm-hmm. it, it really strikes to the core for me of what it is to be reconciled to god it's it's not something that we do it's purely a gift of grace and how wonderful that is and um yeah that's it just really gets to the heart of how beautiful the gospel can be and how um inspiring it is for us and um how challenging as well it can be for us yeah you, you spoke of the mystery of this beauty and let's press in there a little bit more because the criminal asked Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. It just strikes me. Isn't this really the cry for all of humanity, whether we know it or not? And so where is the hope for that criminal and all the rest of us criminals out here trying to do this thing called life? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that is, that's, that really hits on on the head. That is all of us. That's our cry. Uh, as human beings, that's what we cry out. Um, you know, we the cross is such a not not only in this passage, but you know, in all the other words of Christ on the cross, and and, and the um, the witness to that in Scripture is such a beautiful account of this sense of you know people crying out and having having this you know, my God, you've forsaken me, for example, being one, and and that sense of trust in you know into your hands I commend my spirit. Um, you know, all of these, I think, have a reflection in what it is to be human. And I think it just is such a beautiful portrait of um, not only who we are, but really the depths of how far Christ went into our humanity and uh, into the darkness of our fallenness and um, really met us in our in our rawness, in our um, in our ignorance and in our sin and in our evil and, and met us really at the depths of that Um where um, Calvin has a great friends where he, he became bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. He truly met us in, in a, where we are. 
And so, yeah, certainly a cry that um, is mimicked and echoed within humanity. And I think, um, you know, the the remembrance of God is the hope that we have that um, Christ does does um, hold us in in remembrance. And um, I think there's something really beautiful that I was reading recently about how in the Hebrew scriptures the act of remembrance is such a, a important priority that mm. I think. You know, today we kind of overlook that. We we just think, oh, just memory, it's just something you have. It's almost an object. But, you know, for them, remembering an event that took place was almost an act of remixing it and reliving it. And almost the remembrance of what God had done, particularly like in the Exodus uh, or or in, in other, you know, events of God's acts in, um, um, in history with Israel, remembering it was almost as important as the actual event itself. You know, the beginning of the Ten Commandments states that I'm the Lord your God who 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 liberated you from the Egyptian captivity. And then the commandments come. And so there's this sense where remembrance has more of a power to it than just, oh, remember me. Remember that I, you know, exist factually, remember who I am. But it's actually this sense of remember me and and being revived and being being in that remembrance. And so um, I think there's a lot more to this than, I, you know, I think that typically gets understood of just like, oh, remember me in your book, like check me off on the list or whatever. Mm-hmm. No, the remembrance is this active uh, recalling and almost to some extent more vital than just the, um, you know, the factual checking of the box for, for us. And so, yeah, it's, um, you know, a big source, of, a great source of hope for us that we um, will be remembered in Christ and that he not only just, you know, has our name and one among billions, but that truly remembers uh, who we are in that remembrance brings us uh, back to uh, back to him. And, and really, I think it foreshadows and, and um, points to the resurrection, that that's the great remembrance that in Christ uh, we are raised again to new life and that that is um uh, the kingdom that is to come is, is that kingdom of new life. And so, yeah, it's a very pregnant <laughs> phrase for sure. Yes. Pregnant indeed. The word even remember, I mean, there's so much you can unpack there with the resurrection mm-hmm. and the way that, that Jesus and his father, um, remember us in the, in the triune life. Um, mm-hmm. what a beautiful thing. Now you, you mentioned, you know, the, the statement that Jesus made, you know, why have you forsaken me? And I, I'd like to scratch that itch just a little bit more, if I may. Mm-hmm. Um, anything that you want to say about some of the uh, atonement theories out there? I, you know, just to let you in on some insight on, in the way I think that, you know, things like punitive theories, like penal substitution, substitutionary atonement, has done a lot of damage in terms of the way that we see the relationship, the triune relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit mm-hmm. uh, revealed at the cross. Anything that you want to say about that? Yeah. Um, no, I, I have a lot of thoughts on this. I think <laughs> I could, I, we could derail the whole, sure, whole sure. Uh, show. But no, I um, I definitely agree. I, th- I think penal substitutionary atonement is um, one of those things that, for me, an early... Um, joy uh, and discovery for theology was just the, the reality that that's not the only way of looking at the cross. And I think tearing down some of those presuppositions that come with it, you know, the idea of um, God being this angry father and then Jesus just being the nice guy that steps in, takes the blow for, you know, the, the whole narrative of that. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, there's, um there's a lot of ways where that divides the trinity itself uh like you said that's extremely problematic um I, i'll throw a little plug in i, I did um do a long video series on on penal substitution on my youtube channel that's um a good i think primer into some of these questions and and how they can be addressed but um yeah i do think like you said the my god my god why have you forsaken me i i think the first way that i understand it is really it proclaims the depth of how far Christ went into our fallen, um, our fallen uh, mind, into our fallen situation, and um, that He truly touched the depths of what it is to to feel forsaken. Uh, now, did the Father actually forsake the Son? I, I don't think that 
that's possible. Uh, the Father and the Son are one. Even Jesus said a few verses before that um, everyone else will abandon me, but my Father will be with me. And um, and I think that's confirmed with the the word that into your spirit I, or into your hands I commend my spirit. Uh, the conclusion of that. And so, um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot there. I think the, you know reflecting back on how it um, ties back into Psalms 22, which is what Christ is um, actually quoting uh, with this phrase. Um, the end of that psalm ends in this triumphant realization that God yes. did not abandon, did not forsake uh, his servant. And so there's there's that aspect as well, where I think, you know, the the taking just that verse by itself without recognizing the um, context to it and the fact that he was declaring something that had a very profound meaning to the listeners who would have known instantly, oh, that's, I know that song. Uh, I know, I know mm-hmm. the way that ends and it's not this hopeless pity, pit pitiful uh, situation. Um, but it truly is one where even in that depth of feeling so God forsaken, uh, God has entered into that God forsakenness and made it his own. And uh, in that sense, redeemed it and, and found us even in that depth where even if I make my bed in hell, you were there. Um, and so that, that's a beautiful, I think, insight to, to that where even in the most um, um, pitiful and in, in, in the depth of, of of despair that we can find ourselves in yeah. Christ has even penetrated into that depth and met us there and comforted us in that moment and brought us to a new life as a result mm, hallelujah praise God well Stephen let's move on to our final pericope of the month it's Matthew chapter 24 36 through 44 It is a revised common lectionary passage for Advent 1 on November the 27th. Please read it for us. Sure. But nobody knows when the day or hour will come, not the heavenly angels and not the Son. Only the Father knows. As it was in the time of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the human one. In those days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark. They didn't know what was happening until the flood came and swept them all away. The coming of the human one will be like that. At that time, there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, stay alert. You don't know what day the Lord is coming. But you understand that if the head of the house knew at what time the thief would come, he would keep alert and wouldn't allow the thief to break into his house. Therefore, you also should be prepared because the human one will come at any time you don't know. Jesus said, Stephen, that nobody knows when the day or hour will come for his reappearance. Only the Father knows. So tell me this, why do so many groups get swept up in prediction addiction, trying over and over again, wrongly, by the way, to proclaim Christ's coming? <laughs> yeah, I, like, I like that phrase, prediction addiction. That's, that's a apt phrase. Yeah, um, you know, I have personal experience with this. Um, I kind of grew up in a situation where that was pretty normal um, to predict, you know, I think every big news event that happened that was the that was the line oh this is a sign it's gonna happen this month or you know the blood moon's coming and <laughs> that's the reason or you know whatever the prediction is gonna be and so yeah i i've an experience you know i i grew up in somewhat of a situation like that and i think i also can speak to the scars that it leaves the uh the kind of almost celebration of of devastation and i think that mm. that's a big part of it that's um, troubling uh, to, to me now, just how much it's, you almost have this eager anticipation to um, see de- see destruction happen because then that confirms Christ's coming or whatever else. And, and so, yeah, there's, it is very clear that nobody knows the time and the hour uh, when Christ is going to come again. And I think that, um, there's the dual sense of always being um, prepared and this is being anticipation for uh, Christ's coming. Um, but, you know, I do think this prediction, prediction addiction, I'm, I think I'm going to keep that and use that um, for it <laughs> phrase. Uh, it's, it's, 
it is a it is a sense of I think our tendency to um, prefer escapism to um, yes. the actual work of the gospel, uh, where it's easier for us to just say it's it's going to all end. So why put in the effort to um, love our neighbor? You yes. know, why put in the effort to build a better world? Uh, you know, Preach. for for the poor and for the lost and for the broken um, when it's all just going to go up in flames, you know? And I, and I think it's an, it's a escape in that sense. It's a cop out um, for the work that we're called to do um, because you get hung up on these things and you get fixated on reading the times and, you know, what is Israel doing this month? That must be a sign or what is this, this country doing this month or, you know, all oh, that was a sign of this, you know, and it, it really becomes almost um, almost just an excuse just to occupy our mind with something else other than, you know, I, I think we, as humans, we, we are very much prone to extrapolating from incomplete data some sort of grand mystery. I, you know, I think that's the root of a lot of conspiracy theories. You know, they talk about how um, when we look up at the stars, they're just a bunch of dots. But what do we see? We see connection points between all of them and so i think we are kind of wired to look for these connections but at the same time it can be that that wiring can be turned back and against us and, and harm us where we are constantly searching for all these signs and constantly searching for this stuff instead of you know we're so fixated on some hidden mystery that we think we can solve and we overlook the things that are that are clear and and direct in the scripture if you feed the hungry you're feeding christ if you close the naked, you're you're giving clothes to Christ, and that those commands that you don't need a you know months and months of study to understand what they mean. You know, if you care for the least of these, you've cared for Christ, and so I think it it is a um, tendency that I, I I think is very problematic and very troubling, troubling, and it, and it, it um, yeah, whatever the cause, I think there's personal individuals will have different you know reasons for the cause. I think for me, it was um, just a part of my upbringing. Um, and it was a little bit kind of fun. It added some, a sense of like, oh, I'm, I'm in on the secret kind of deal. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think the secret is not so exclusionary. Um, it's not so um, devastating for other people. I, I think the secret is that God loves us and calls us to love our neighbor. And sometimes the simple things are we have to think of something more complex to entertain ourselves, but uh, that's really just a distraction from doing the work that we're called to do. And that's why I think at the bottom, it, it really is the sense of uh, desiring escape instead of um, taking taking ownership over what we've been called to do. Yes, yes. I, I hear you and I say amen. I you know, you can keep prediction addiction if I can use celebration of devastation because that <laughs> to me, that's a smoke screen. It's a way for people to hide and mm-hmm. not to engage. Like you said, whether it's neighbor justice issues, whatever the case may be, mm-hmm. um, it is certainly not a I, I don't think a faithful expression of the gospel. And it's not in fidelity with the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Some use this particular passage to construct a doctrine of rapture. And uh, I'm just wondering, Stephen, from your perspective, will some be taken while others are left behind? What's going on? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, I, as again, I, I was taught the rapture as some sort of fact that, you know, I just don't think the scriptures have actual have, have a concept of. And, and it, again, is, you know, an escapist um, mentality and a little bit sci-fi, you know, it, it scratches that itch for some science fiction. And, you know, they made those movies uh, however long ago. Those were part of my upbringing, the whole Left Behind movies. And, you know, mm-hmm. it does, I think psychologically, it does give us a sense of feeling imp- important and elevation above other people that we're the ones that are going to be taken. And, you know, oh, you're just going to be left behind and you'll see you're going to struggle and and instead of, like I said, taking the ownership of of doing the, the gospel work here and now, you just anticipate leaving it all behind and 
being able to, it almost gives justification and permission to indifference and to apathy for suffering and um, almost gives you, gives you the permission to see people as enemies that, that you're allowed to hate uh, instead of as people that you're called to love. And, you know, if there's these people that are going to be left behind and you're the chosen one that's not, then, you know, you have, you're justified theologically in excluding them and you're justified theologically in hating them and, and considering them less, less, lesser than. And it really puts that, um, calling off yourself to, to do, uh, you know, the kingdom work and to love those people, but, um, it, it lets you demonize them. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's a lot I can say about this. I, I did do a book at one point on the rapture that, um, I've since, um, kind of pulled it off circulation just for various reasons, but I do still think that, um, it's, it's a really problematic doctrine. I think scripturally, uh, there's really no genuine justification for it. It is a kind of a modern concept. I think a lot of people don't, don't really understand that, that it's something that, um, really wasn't on anybody's radar until, you know, maybe the last few hundred years. Um, I think John Darby was the first one to kind of propose it as an idea, and it really took off from the popularity of his um, commentary. And so it's a newer idea. Most of the church fathers had no concept of this. Um, and it's, you know, something I think has had a devastating effect on uh, the Christian church and on our witness. Um, and, you know, theologically, what does it say about God, that God would mm. abandon these people, that God would, um, uh, you know, almost take joy in, in their destruction and their, um, in their, um, in their fate, you know, and I think one of the beautiful things about, um, you know, Bart's theology, especially as I, I come back to, he, he makes such a point where God does not will to be God without us. Mm. And that that's the heart of God for yes. the human race, not to leave us behind, not to celebrate destroying many of them, but that God does not defines himself as the one who chooses not to be without us. God doesn't need us. You know, we obviously we don't, God doesn't need us. He's not dependent upon us, but out of this greatness of God's love, God chooses not to be God without us. And that's what the incarnation is uh, that now and forever within the Trinitarian life, there is a human being, Jesus Christ, who bears the scars of our existence. And that's, that's the profoundness of, of God's dedication to us. And so I think it just, yeah, it completely denies that message and flips it on its head and said that, yeah, it's for some people, but not, you know, not for everybody else that, that, you know, God's perfectly happy just, you know, getting rid of these people yeah. and um, leaving them behind. And I think that just contradicts who God is. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot, lot there. I, I, I'm very much think the rapture is, um, one of those doctrines that has just kept around more because of how it, um, fits already with our own thinking. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not a, it's not baptized thinking, I guess you could say it's not, it's not a way of thinking that corresponds to the greatness of God's love and kindness. It's something that fits very well within our own fallen approach to the world. Yes. Um, and so I think that's the reason why it's persisted for so long, I would say, is because it isn't uh, something that <clears throat> challenges us necessarily to be more Christ-like. Uh, if anything, it pulls us away from that. And so it's an easy doctrine to accept because it, it speaks that we're special, these other people aren't. And it speaks to this very, um, like I said, exclusionist, it justifies hatred and, and all these things are said. And so I think it's it's such an interesting um, belief that's persisted. And, and I understand that, um, you know, many people still do do accept it. But I think I would challenge those people scripturally and historically and theologically uh, to really question this, that, you know, that's not um the way of thinking that Christ has, has called us to the, the being renewed by our mind doesn't lead to uh, this sort of approach. Mm. Um, and so I think that's, um, yeah, that's one thing. For me growing up, it was one of those doctrines that I think has had a, 
um, had a psychological effect more than it had a biblical or a scriptural or, or, or yes. a, a theological uh, root. And so kind of returning to those, and I think that can help um, yes. kind of re- relieve the doctrine itself. Yeah, well said. It's rooted in fear. And I, James Cone wrote that if we cannot recognize the truth, then it cannot liberate us from untruth. And of course, mm-hmm. his the context in which he's writing it is different, but I think it can be applied here. Um, mm-hmm. that we just can't see it. And we have to first look to Jesus, who is the embodiment and the fullness and totality of truth. And this just mm-hmm. doesn't align with who he's revealed uh, the Father to be. Well, yeah. Stephen, I'm so grateful for you saying yes to the invitation to be a guest here on Gospel Reverb. It's been a delight to talk with you and to hear your insights. Uh, I think this is going to be a rich blessing to our listening audience. And certainly we hope that the Father, Son, and Spirit continue to um, bless you, to encourage you, to give you insight as you continue to write and speak, uh, that all would come to the knowledge of the truth revealed in Jesus Christ. As is our tradition here on Gospel Reverb, we'd like to close with prayer. So if you would be willing, would you please uh, just say a closing prayer over our listening audience in the work of the Spirit in their lives? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, yeah, well, I just say thanks again to you and, and appreciate it. But yeah, I'm happy to pray. I think, you know, we've we've talked about hope in the resurrection and the kingdom a lot. So I think can't go can't go wrong with the Lord's prayer. It's mm-hmm. it's really the center for me of what it is to pray. And so I'll can I'll conclude with that. Yes. So um, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for being a guest of Gospel Reverb. If you like what you heard, give us a high rating and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. Share this episode with a friend. It really does help us get the word out as we are just getting started. Join us next month for a new show and insights from the RCL. Until then, peace be with you.